three, two, one. Sometimes you wake up in the morning from the most wonderful dream and all that remains is fragments of silicon. Welcome to our first um, proper broadcast, I guess. Uh, proper uh, non-review broadcast of Fragments of Silicon after the holiday. Um, yeah, it's a European edition. Um, up this week, we've got Simon Gardner of Climax Studios with us. Hello. Oh, right. Um, so let's get into it. Um what we like to do is um, we'd like to start out by asking um, our the people we interview um, how they got interested in video games, both on a personal and professional level, to start things out. Um, well, it goes back a long, long time now. Uh, I think it was about 11, and uh, myself and my brother, <laughs> we got a ZX80 uh, home computer, um, <clears throat> and... Uh, since then, we were always just interested in computers and video games, uh, got various gaming systems. And then um, he went off to college to do chemical engineering. I went off to college to do uh, architecture. Um, but obviously, we always sort of stayed in touch. And then after um, I came out from uh, doing my degree, uh, we got together and uh, sort of worked on games uh he was doing the coding i was doing the artwork and we, we did that sort of stuff in the evenings uh you know after work and um we came very close to signing a game with uh, what was then Cygnosis uh back on the amiga uh, but i was still doing my finals and I, I just thought i just can't do this you know i had a lot of college work still to do as well as the day job and uh, so we, we passed that up, and then he went and got a job at a company called Microprose, which did a lot of the uh, flight simulator stuff. And then one day he said to me after I qualified, they're looking for artists, why don't you apply? And so that's really how I got sort of full-time into, uh, into the games industry. And I joined uh, Microprose. I was there only probably about five months. And then uh, a great opportunity came up to uh, join what was Ignosis, which had been bought by Sony. Uh, to launch a new console, um, which obviously was the PlayStation 1. And then, uh, uh, you know, I guess the, the rest is history. Um, I suppose the question that beckons most is how involved were you with the, like, PlayStation 1 launch? Like, did you memory coding that Cygnosis was doing, or uh, were you, like, working on Wipeout? Uh, no, I wasn't working on Wipeout, but obviously I know all the guys that were. We, we were working on um, a couple of games. One was called uh, Assault Rigs, which was one of the launch titles. And then um, shortly after that, we launched a, a game called G-Police. Uh, we, were, we were in a separate studio to the Wipeout guys, um, but that, you know, those are the sort of titles we were working on. Yes, I remember G-Police. I, I think I've heard of Assault Rigs. Yeah, it was a, Soul Rigs was a very early one, but it was very much overshadowed by Wipeout and uh, Destruction Derby at the time. 
Right. Yeah, uh, that's the games that people tend to think about when uh, they hear, you know, PlayStation 1, Psygnosis. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, all those guys have sort of, most of them are still in the industry, um, you know, but uh, I stay in touch with them. Uh, but yeah, yeah, a long time ago, like I said. No doubt. Jeez, uh, that's um, over 20 years now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I went to the um, Sony 20th uh, birthday party for the launch uh, last year, I think it was. In fact, yeah, it was, it was just over a year ago. Yeah, a big catch-up down in London. I'm like, I'm not, uh, like, the PlayStation 1 launched in 95 here, so it's like, I guess it was 96 in Europe? Or? Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, 90, 95, 96, something like that. I mean, I, I joined Cygnosis late 93. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we were working on it just over a year and a bit um, before the launch. Well, it must have been exciting working on, you know, the first PlayStation. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the first time Ian Hetherington came down to our studio and sort of told us about this device, I remember him sort of holding up a, a cardboard box and he, he had a marker pen and he sort of drew out the, the square shape with the circle on it for the, you know, the CD, the top loader on it, and said, you know, this is the future. This is, uh, this is what we, you're going to be working on which, uh, you know, it was incredibly exciting because obviously they'd been working on the FM Towns on some uh, streaming CD games like Microcosm and mm -hmm. Nova Storm. And so those those were kind of the games which had made Sony, you know, look at Cygnosis and go, yeah, that's a, that's a developer we want to acquire because they've got all this um, CD and streaming knowledge. Right. I remember Microcosm vaguely. Yeah. Like, so the, the little miniaturized submarine shooter. Yeah. I, I remember there was a ton of backstory in the manual. Like, I'm not sure if it yeah, all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, back in the days then, you know, the boxes were much bigger. So there was, uh, there was uh, normally a pamphlet or something in there, which obviously you just don't get anymore. Not usually. Although, uh, probably with, like, some of the special uh, packages that are uh, made these days. Yeah, yeah, collector's editions and uh, things, yeah. Um, but anyway, so how long did you uh, work for uh, Cygnosis? Um, I think in total uh, I was in Cygnosis for about eight years um, through different departments doing different things. Um, you know, we, uh, we worked on a, another game called Overboard. Um, we did lots of the um, ports as well of things like Wipeout that we did to PC and things like that. Um, so involved involved in a lot of things, um, you know, through that time. And then I, I actually sort of moved within the Sony group uh, and ended up being involved in the, the finishing off of Medieval and then the production of Medieval 2, which was uh, another, uh, you know, PlayStation 2 game uh, through that time. Right. Yeah, uh, the Medieval series, a uh, really underrated series, a uh, couple of platformers there. Yeah, it was. A, I mean, it was a peculiar British game, a lot of British humour in there, but um, I know it's it's got a very sort of strong, even to this day, sort of fan base. Um, yeah, it was very well regarded. And in fact, uh, Medieval 2 actually won a BAFTA, believe it or not. Um, in what category? Uh, I believe it was best console game that year. 
That's pretty impressive. I think it was uh, very much uh, aiming at the uh, correct, uh, you know, judging audience at the BAFTAs at the time. Um, you know, like I said, a very peculiar British uh, game with lots of British humour and literary references and things like that. Mm. Like, um, did you, like, personally get the BAFTA or is it uh, somebody else? Oh, no, the teams. I mean, it was a team effort and the uh, the creative director and the uh, producer uh, were, were awarded that. I mean, it went to the whole team anyway. Makes sense, makes sense. Um, so I guess uh, the question that comes up next is uh, what precipitated your exit from the Sony group? Well, funnily enough, it was um, it's quite an interesting story, but it was around the year 2000 and it was all that dot-com nonsense. And uh, a lot of my friends were in, you know, new exciting companies. Uh, on the surface, it looked like they were making lots of money. And um, so I kind of got a little bit greedy and thought, oh, that's uh, something I should be doing. And I, I joined a, a company which uh, seemed to be doing quite well, which was uh, a, game, a company called Rage Games. Uh, they'd done the incoming game. Uh, so I, I went and joined them. They were a, a listed company. Um, you know, I got my uh, my shares. And uh, and then, you know, fairly <laughs> quickly realized that uh, no, not all was good in, uh, you know, the dot-com world. Um, you know, Rage, Rage was a games publisher, fa fairly sort of small, um, but they'd ridden that whole dot-com uh, bubble. And, uh, you know, I, I went and joined them and then realized that, uh, like I said, um, you know, a lot of the share price rise that they'd had had been nothing to do with actually the, the product they were making. It was just the sector they were in. Uh, but there you go. <laughs> it's one of those things. Oh, I, I hope it was um, not too painful to exit that uh, deal. Um, well, you know, at the end of the day, rage went down. Um, I think I've still got some certificates somewhere which, uh, you know, probably of historical value, but nothing else. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we came back after the Christmas break back in, I think, 2003, maybe. And, uh, yeah, we were we were told that, um, yeah, Rage was uh, insolvent, <laughs> and that was the end of that. And then after that, I, I did a bit of consulting, and then um, I remembered that the year before, this little tiny British company called Climax had uh, tried to headhunt me from Rage, so I sent them a speculative uh, email, and um, yeah, the rest is history. Uh, I joined on a six-week contract, and I've been here 14 years, uh, working my way up to CEO. Um, that's a that's definitely an impressive climb. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an exciting story. I mean, you know, definitely with uh, you know, Climax is a you know privately owned company, and it's very different, obviously, to companies like Sony, uh, which are big corporate companies. And so, you know, the opportunities are, uh, are there. You know, you've, you've, if you work hard and, uh, you know, make some good decisions, then, uh, you know, you, you, you have an opportunity. Um, that, that's what I love about, you know, working for a company like Climax. Hmm. Yeah, that's not dissimilar to um, other people we talk to, you know, um, we have a lot of indie devs on the program, and that's a similar story. Obviously, kind of scaled down to size, but the sentiment's uh, the same. Yeah, the, the, I mean, we—I I always laugh, but you know, in, in 
by pretty much every definition, we are an indie studio as well. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we're just a big one. Yeah, it's like when people say indie studios, that it's like a size designation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know, I it's mean, like, yeah. I, I mean, by actual definitions, Valve is an independent uh, studio because... For sure, yeah. I mean, we're, we're at about 100 people, just over. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, you know the the same principles um, still apply. We, we we generally these days do um, a number of smaller projects. Um, you know it's it's kind of the the days of a studio like ours making a triple A game are, are long gone. Um, you know because they've got thousands of people on them. But we still sometimes get to work on those sorts of projects by helping out some of those bigger teams. Uh, if they've got a you know particular need for some bug fixing or they need some content created, um, so we we do still touch things like that. Um, but on the whole, with the the advent of VR and AR, the the teams have been much smaller. Probably a max of maybe 15 at peak, uh, but probably you know more likely around the sort of nine or ten people. And then we've had up to eight teams like that kind of working, uh, doing various things. Um, which, which has been, you know, very interesting for us. Um, it's kind of a departure from the days of things like Silent Hill Shattered Memories um, and even the, uh, more recently, the Assassin's Creed Chronicles trilogy we did. Yeah, um, so for those who might not be familiar with Climax Studios, they've existed for about uh, 30 years, I think. Yeah, like, that's correct. And... Um, They've got a very, very long list of games they've worked on that spans the gamut, like um, everything from ports um, to uh, portable work, you know, a lot of Game Boy Color stuff here, um, to like even original properties like Sudeki. Yep, that's the first game I was actually brought in to help get finished. <laughs> ah, I, I remember Sudeki, like, somewhat. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's been fourteen years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Although I think I played the PC version that got released on Steam uh, a few years ago. Like, yeah, it's still still selling actually. Um, yeah, we've uh, yeah we're still selling that. It it does you know uh, a reasonable number of units every you know every month. Um, surprising really, but yeah, it does. Steam's actually a really good place for classic games, or, you know, maybe not so classic games uh, to get a second win. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, to probably the most notable, like, in terms of franchises that you guys have worked on is the Silent Hill and Assassin's Creed uh, series. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the, the Silent, um, sorry, the yeah, the Silent Hill uh Games we did, we ended up doing um, the first one was on the uh, on the uh, PSP, uh, and um, we did that. It was it was our, our first sort of foray into Silent Hill, and um, I think we did a reasonably good job on it, all things considered. And I'm certainly Konami must have thought so because they they gave us a chance to do Silent Hill Shattered Memories, and um, you know, I, I still, it, it was a bit of a Marmite game in the end. Obviously, Silent Hill is a, is a very precious franchise to the some of the fans. And we did do some different things with it. 
Um, the original idea was it, it started off as a, a remake of the original Silent Hill, mm -hmm. but we were asked to put it on the Wii, and as we thought about it, we decided that we would kind of retell it in spirit. So, you know, predominantly it'd be the same characters, but we would would make a different story out of it. And and obviously by putting it on the Wii, the 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 way that we interacted with the game was changed. We had the motion controls and and so uh, and the idea came out of this um this idea of uh, the psychological profiling and testing and, and you know a huge amount of work and research went into that uh, whereby we um, you know made it um, the, all about the choices that the player made and ultimately uh, that would give you one of a number of story arcs that would come out of it uh, based on your your personality your real personality and then right at the end we would give um, an actual written scrolling profile which said you know things about the player and we had quite a lot of um you know feedback from people saying how accurate it was now you know well it was all based on on you know solid real um ideas um but i don't know how much of that was people wanting to believe it or not but it, it did have a very emotional end to the story. And uh, we also had a number of people telling us the way that, you know, it made them cry and it had made them sort of reach out to family members that they'd lost contact with. It was it was that sort of a, an emotional game. And I was really sort of proud of the work we were able to do on that and, and how that all came together. And, and some of those ideas I know have kind of been uh, picked up and, um, you know, super massive are sort of operating in that area now. So I just think it's, you know, it's, it's probably due a resurgence, so it's uh, you know it's good to see them doing that. Indeed, and yeah, I think Silent Hill uh, Shattered Memories is the, probably the most beloved out of the post Silent Silent Hills. It seems to be. Um, we we seem to be the the highest Metacriting not Team Silent team that have touched Silent Hill, so uh, we'll take that. Um, yeah, it, like I said, the the, the fan base. You know, some some absolutely adore Silent Hill Shattered Memories, and others think you know sacrilege. But I think on the whole, it's it does really stand up well, and it's a it's a you know a really engaging game. Right. It's um like it's from what I remember, a lot more psychological thriller than uh, your average Silent Hill game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we. The, the themes were all about, um, you know, personal demons. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for uh, for people that might actually end up playing it after listening to this, but it is worth the play. And um, a lot a lot of the the, the themes were all about. It, it was less horror, much more psychological. And even at the end, you're you're not entirely sure what was well, you know, what was real and what wasn't real. And um, the, you know, I think that the the, the the, the four endings, each in their own way, are, are very, very powerful, and, and the, you know they're a real roller coaster of emotion, which sort of play on the, the the things that the character looks at in the game. So because we've got a pointer with the Wii controller, we were able to see what people looked at in the game, where they spent their time. We analysed where they went in the game, whether they looked at everything, whether they explored everything, or whether they just ran through the levels, uh, and what they looked at in particular in the game, whether there were, you know, things of a sexual nature or, a, mm -hmm. you know, a, um, substance abuse nature. And all of that built the profile of the player. 
and that had an impact on the type of monsters you met and the type of characters you met and the way they were dressed, uh, the songs that you, you were played, um, and even down to um, some of the puzzles that you actually had to, to complete. Um, so it was a really in-depth game at the end of the day. Yeah, another thing that I was uh, struck by was the choice of color. Like, it's a very um, blue game. And I mean, like, it's literally... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it came about because we decided instead of going through the sort of uh, the rusty sort of um, transitions that they had in the original Silent Hill games, we, we were going to go for this um, theme. Instead of fire and ash, we were going to go for this idea of ice and snow. And, and it kind of represents the coldness at the center of the uh, you know the main character in the game uh, and also it sort of echoes with the the emptiness and the the sort of isolation that they're feeling i'm being very careful with my words here so i don't spoil anything fair enough fair enough yeah it's like you know it's another deviation from standard horror because you don't usually see the color blue in a horror movie or something like that. Yeah. It's like, probably because, you know, blue is more associated with melancholy than terror. And again, and again, that's that's very on, on message with the theme of the, uh, the story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all of, all of these things were sort of conscious decisions. They're very much conscious decisions that we were going for with it. Like, um, so uh, which version of uh, Shattered Memories was, like, the lead version? Like, did, did you make this game for the PlayStation 2, or was it, like, the Wii uh, initially? No, it was, it was originally for the Wii. It was, it was definitely for the Wii. At, at the time, there was a feeling that what the Wii needed were some adult games. Um, there, there just weren't any. And, um, you know, it was a thought that, a lot of people had bought the Wii. They, they were playing the sort of more casual games, but there was a huge opportunity here for, you know, some more some more adult games to come out. We we were one of about three, I think, that came out in that sort of quarter, and uh, I think we all fared reasonably poorly uh, in comparison to if we'd been kind of leading on on the uh, you know the place the Sony SKUs, um, just because I think, you know, the the Wii did have a more casual um, audience and probably majority of gamers had a PlayStation and then they had a Wii as well and you know if if we'd have focused more on the PlayStation SKU that at the time that probably would have you know um, been better but we did release those SKUs um, but one of the problems is because we we'd sort of wholeheartedly taken the Wii on board as the lead SKU uh, a lot of the uh, charm of the game was the way that we used the Wii controller as your mobile phone and as a torch. So we'd, we'd play the phone messages out of the Wii controller. Uh, when you were looking around, obviously it's very natural to use the Wii controller as a torch to, to shine into the darkness. Th things like that. It was, you know, it was, it was, it just kind of worked so well on the Wii. Um, and obviously, with p adapting those control schemes to a, a normal controller you do lose some of that sort of tactileness of the of the game design and the interface. Like, true enough, uh, it, 
it was kind of rare because, well, not a lot, you know, it was kind of the other way around most of the time. You know, uh, regular games got ported to the Wii and they got the motion controls forced into them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it, it, you know, I think some, some of the reviews, I mean, we got quite a few, you know, 9 and 10 out of 10 reviews for the game and they 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 very much if you were the sort of person that embraced the game for what it was and and weren't um kind of upset by the fact it was silent hill uh, but we've done all these different things to the characters and story i think you know you you would see that there was a, a very very good game there with a with a very clever interface um and um you know, I'm still extremely proud of that game. Uh, obviously, um, Sam Barlow and um, you know Mark Simmons were the the two uh, the creative and production leads on it, and it was very much their baby. Um, but I, I still look upon that as a you know a very strong game that we did from the studio. Hmm. And I suppose another question is. Um, how hands-on or off was Konami with the whole deal? Um, they, we, we got to work with um, the American, the, the, the American uh, side of Konami, and they, they, they supported us really well. I mean, when, when they gave us the brief to remake Silent Hill 1, and then I was very apprehensive when they came over for the first time to see the you know, the first sort of uh, couple of months work. And I was thinking this could, you know, this is going to go really, really well or really, really badly. And I'm not sure which. And luckily they came in, played the build and and saw the potential that we had there and, and you know, and just absolutely loved it. And, and they were hugely supportive of us. Um, you know, they really, really were. They were great to work with. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they kind of gave us a free reign on it. Um, I think at the time, the Silent Hill franchise was, you know, obviously it had been handed over from um, Konami Japan to America to, to work with, and um, which meant that we, we did have quite a lot of freedom there to, to do what we liked. And, um, you know, that, that was great. I'm like, oh, that's good to hear. Like, you know, sometimes the studios can be um, restrictive, like very restrictive with their, um, especially their tentpole properties. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. For sure. And that, that normally just slows everything down. I mean, I think, you know, in the industry, everyone everyone's trying to do the right thing and, and all the rest of it. No one's intentionally, you know, doing anything uh, to hold people back, but the the bigger the franchises you work with, you know, that can just slow you down on approvals or you make assumptions that something's going to be all right and you press ahead anyway. And then you, you have to then incorporate feedback later on that, you know, you have done something that, you know, their, their, uh, IP sort of holders aren't, aren't happy with, but that's, that's just the nature of the business. I mean, ma making games is hard, you know, is really, really hard. And that's just another, you know, component of it. Um, so, you know, you just take it all on board and get on with it. Indeed. And um, as I recall, uh, Silent Hill isn't the only Konami property you guys worked on. There's also uh, that... Uh, we, um, did, 
we did Rocket Knight as well, which was a remake of the um, platformer. Uh, yeah, I, I remember playing it, and it seemed like a, actually a sequel to the old Sparkster games. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, we 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 kind of just. Um, you know, again, we we actually they they worked we worked very closely with the American team on that one. Um, they they had a lot more um, sort of toing and froing on that one because um, in some ways I think it's it's an easier one to have an opinion on. Um, with, with what we were doing with Silent Hill, it was very complex and deep, and we'd already done a lot of work on it in terms of the way it would work and and all the rest of it. So it's quite hard to sort of come in and have an opinion on that in the way that. You can come in on a, you know, on a platformer, and and you know give feedback on you know the controls or the speed that the character's moving through the level, uh, or even the difficulty. Um, so so yeah, we did work very closely with the um, the American team on uh, Rocket Knight. Uh, like, uh, like uh, <laughs> I honestly don't have much more to say on Rocket Knight. It it kind of just existed. <laughs> well, that's fine. <laughs> like, I remember playing it, but it it was uh, all right, you know. But not for nothing. But it wasn't like the original games, where you know, um, underrated masterpieces of that particular generation. Yeah, I'll I'll just I'll sit on the fence on that one and say, you know, maybe that's rose tinted spectacles. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like. Um, I suppose it depends on which one we're talking about. I don't have as kind things to say about the Super NES version. Like, yeah. Like, well, the Super NES version, it, it was kind of tuned for the more fast and stuff that the Genesis was a little better at. Yeah. I'm like, but anyway, um, so uh, speaking in more modern times, uh, you ha you worked on the Assassin's Creed franchise with uh, the Assassin's Creed Chronicles. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I mean that that really was the the, the you know the premise there was just to um, I, I can't say too much about it. Obviously, we still got you know huge NDAs and everything. But um, you know the the sort of light version of it is that um, and and again just just from my perspective, I'm not speaking for Ubisoft here at all, but. You know, my my thought process behind it was, a lot of fans wanted to, you know, learn a little bit more about some of the other characters that they'd seen in, you know, some of the other supporting literature and things like that, and um, maybe Ubisoft thought about it as a as a toe in the water to maybe appease those fans, but also to um, give them some of the things they've been crying out for, which is you know other locations, and so. You know, it was it was an opportunity for us to. It, it, it kind of started off very much as a. These really should be indie games. They 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 really should be fairly short, and fairly sort of freeform, made by very small teams, and and we'll see how they do and how they go, um, and kind of over time they they got longer and evolved and the art came became more complex that's the only thing i can really say about it but um you know it was uh, there was a a lot of work there doing three games back to back like that yeah and they kind of i'm not sure if this was um planned or not but they did kind of fill the gap in between um syndicate and origins yeah 
terms of like not storyline but releases. Like, yeah, know. yeah. I think possibly more more by chance. Um, you know, we we uh, we ended up doing a lot more work on those games than I think was initially uh, sort of kind of thought would be the case between both us and Ubisoft. And um, I think the release date really was, yeah, like I say, it was a, more, more a sort of, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it was a happy coincidence that it came out when it did. Hmm. I'm like, and uh, is the Chronicles series concluded or might we expect more in the future? Uh, no idea, to be honest on that. Uh, we're not currently working with Ubisoft, but we, we do sort of talk to them a lot. Um, we, we kind of moved off into a different direction after that project and kind of got wrapped up in the whole VR thing. And that, that became a fairly big focus for us for the next few years um, after that. And so um, it, it was just, I don't know, we, we, we just kind of moved away from that. Um, I don't know if they've got any plans to do any more with it, but um, you know we're, we're not working on anything to do with that. Fair enough, fair enough. So I, I suppose the grand question is, what uh, made you move into the direction of virtual reality and augmented reality? Well, I, I had uh, we were at uh, the uh, yeah the uh, dice show in Las Vegas, probably in 2013. And uh, we had a meeting with this company called Oculus. And my, my CTO had been banging on about them on Kickstarter for ages and telling me all about it. And I kind of glazed over a bit and he was backing it and all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, I ended up in this, uh, at this meeting and, um, you know, they strapped this thing on my head and, and said, well, what do you think of this? Now, now going back the 20 years, I'd played Doom on a, I think it was called a VRX or VRF or something, headset, uh, back in the day, which, you know, used to make you feel very ill and all the rest of it. And so I was thinking, oh, here we go. It's going to be like that again. And I tried this, uh, you know, early Oculus headset on, and I was like, wow, this is really good. And um, so we had a chat and uh, reminisce and all the rest of it, and um, that was great. And uh, they said they'd send us a kit, and we, you know, we said, well, we'll, we'll do something with it. And then um, later that year, I ended up with a, an E3 at another meeting with, again, uh, Oculus. And um, I thought I was going in to talk about the Rift, and then they, they sort of unveiled this uh, kind of mobile phone-based thing to me and said, try this on. And um, at that point, I, I uh, tried it on, and... And I thought, wow, this is this is really really good. And you know, I could see the, you know, the advantages of it uh, as a way of getting kind of cheap, good enough VR into people's hands, uh, provided they had a you know reasonably good smartphone. And um, and 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 even in that meeting, the first time I tried it on, my my head sort of my mind went back to an early game on the Spectrum called Tail Gunner. And I thought we could do something really good. And that that's kind of where Bandit Six was born. And uh, which was our first uh, VR game. And uh, we very quickly built a prototype and we shared that with Oculus. And they were like, my God, you know, you, you've only had this six weeks and you've built a game. And obviously it took longer to get a, a polished game out, um, but we did launch it with the, the sort of the early adopter kit um, about a year before the commercial launch. And 
you know, it's 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 a, I I don't know. I've had lots of people tell me about that game that it's it's been a you know really good sort of first step into VR to sort of you know it's a gaze shooter, but if if you're demonstrating your new gear VR to someone, um, they they very quickly understand what they've got to do, and you know this advantage of being able to look all around and spot planes and things like that and shoot them down. So that that's kind of how we got into it. And at the end of the day, never forget we're all just geeks in this industry we all do it because we love games and we all love technology and so anything that new that comes along you know straight away it's kind of interesting and and that's kind of how we got into it we forged a, a you know a fairly strong relationship with oculus and you know developed more and more products with them and and of course that inevitably opened a door with google when they started talking to developers and we, we got in very early on the tango device which was the early uh, Tango phone, which is the early AR um, thing. We did a couple of games on uh, AR. And then uh, obviously the uh, the Daydream, we, we had a launch title on Daydream in Hunter's Gate uh, and then followed that, that up with Lola. So we, we've been, um, you know, very, very involved in the, the VR stuff and the, you know, and naturally a progression of VR is AR. And then we, we recently launched Arise on the AR kit uh, on the uh, iOS 10, uh, 11. Uh, I think you might be the first developer that we've talked to. Well, uh, anyway, I think you're the first developer that we've talked to that's um, done mobile VR. Like, we, we've talked to other VR developers, but they're more, you know, the high-end Oculus or, you know, even room-scale stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the advantage... The advantage of doing the mobile stuff is that the well, it's, it's it's probably quicker turnaround and and in, in some ways the economics of it seem to make a lot more sense because with with the way that Samsung had given away Gear VRs that there was a much bigger market um, in the mobile space and uh, so for us it was uh, you know a reasonably good move to go into that in a way that up until probably this Christmas. You know, I'd always worried about the install bases on uh, on the the sort of um, PC-based uh, you know VR units, and also the the cost of making the games. When when you're making mobile games, you know everyone's a lot more forgiving on the the graphics and all the rest of it, and that that does equate into lower budgets, which means you know you've got an opportunity to earn out on those products in a way that you know I, kind of everyone's sort of saying, where's the AAA VR? On the PC-based stuff, and you think, yeah, but you know, AAA VR games—they cost a lot of money, and with the low installed base, you, you know, you're going to really struggle to to make a profit on that. So the economics of it, you know, unless someone's paying for it and supporting you, a platform holder, you know, those types of games are very difficult to justify. But I, I do believe that's changing now because um, you know I'm starting to read the reports of the successful sales that. Uh, the Sony PSVRs had, and even the Rift uh, over the you know the Thanksgiving uh, week. It seems like you know they they really have shifted some numbers there, which is you know very exciting. Indeed, uh, I know the Sony is pushing the VR headset pretty aggressively. Like I, I've seen ads for um, Skyrim VR on the television. Yeah, I've not tried it myself, but uh, again, I'm starting to read reviews and and not just reviews, but uh, comments in reviews from you know real users, 
and uh, it's got me sufficiently excited that I'm going to actually go and try it, try it out uh, in the next day or two. Um, it's just one of those things I just assumed it'd be quite difficult. I mean, I, I know graphically people are saying, look, it, it's obviously not as good as playing it on a PC or, or you know, a 4K telly on a PS Pro or something, but the the immersion is is the reward, and it's you know it's really good. So I'm I'm very curious to see it. If if you know, I think it's one of those things where you either accept the you know some sickness that you'll have if you use the normal um, you know movement controls, um, or you use the teleporter. But um, it's one of those things. I think you know certainly we found in the studio that with the sickness, it is like seasickness. You do get your sea legs, and you you get over it. And you know if you if you play enough of it, you just get used to it so um, yeah that'd be that'd be really interesting to play that yeah that's what other vr devs have told us like um uh one told us that uh, like the first time they tried out vr <laughs> they actually had to call in sick because they got um you know such a case of the seasickness but yeah. eventually it's you know wore off yeah it's a big problem because obviously the poor well, it's one of these things where in, in most game development you you focus on getting everything there and, and get it looking great and you don't worry if the frame rate's not quite there but in VR development you've got to do it the other way around because otherwise you, everyone starts getting ill so you, you have to target frame rate first and try and maintain frame rate as you add more and more content in um, because otherwise you can't you can't test it you know, because if it's really bad, it doesn't matter how good you are, you will get ill. So it's it's just a, a one, of, one of those sort of interesting side effects of uh, VR development. It's just changed one of the the sort of ways you have to go about it. Yeah, I think Sony ma actually mandates that your uh, VR game has to run at 60 frames per second, or they won't allow it on their platform. Yeah, for sure. But obviously, when you're developing it, um, you, you know you. That, that's the goal you know you've got to get there in the end and normally you, that would be one of the you know the things you do towards the end of the game making it run at 60 but obviously in development when you're trying to develop them you've got to have it running it's you know 60 from the start otherwise you just can't test it indeed like it's kind of an occupational hazard for sure yeah i guess i guess i always used to be amused at thinking about some of the qa guys having to uh QA uh, dancing games that always made me smile. <laughs> and I'm sure those are the stuff of legend. Yeah, same here. Right. Now, um, shifting over to the AR side of things, um, uh, what sorts of developments have you made in that space? Well, we've um, we've already so we we did a couple of things with, like I said, with uh, Tango. Uh, with Google, right. uh, did Tango Towers. Uh, we, we did a couple of other things I can't talk about. Um, they, they've sort of shifted onto different platforms now, and we also um, we, we kind of got very excited when Apple announced AR Kit because you know whilst I've I've been out a couple of times to try Magic Leap stuff on. And obviously, we've got a HoloLens. Um, you know, I've really enjoyed playing around with the HoloLens. Uh, to me, uh, Apple's solution, whilst by no means the best, was, you know, because it just relied on the camera. It, it seems, seems to me that 
this is a very, very good way of getting AR to the masses so that they can at least start to get familiar with it and what it does. <clears throat> and so, and also we realized that because it was going to be part of iOS 11, it, it was, you know, the potential marketplace there would be hundreds of millions of devices in, in a very short time. So one of the problems with both VR and AR at the moment, it, it seems that no sooner as someone launched a device, then they're talking about the next device. And the, the big worry is that, you know, when are you ever going to get a critical mass of the installed base? But phone-based AR, it, it sort of felt, well, everyone's got a phone and it'll just work, you know, provided they've got a, a you know, an A9 or A10 chipset that, you know, supports the VR mode, sorry, the AR mode. Um, so that, that was very exciting for us. So we, we kind of, as soon as they launched the beta on that, uh, we didn't have any contact with Apple. We just, um, we just developed a game, uh, you know, the game Arise. And uh, it, despite appearances, it, it could only be made on AR kit because it very much relies on perspective to solve the puzzles. Because in the game, um, I'm very excited about the future of AR. And obviously, you know, the, the dream is some sort of head-mounted, you know, glasses display. And... I'm interested in the way that you interact with that. Obviously, things like HoloLens have got gestures and things like that, which kind of are a bit hit and miss. Um, obviously, the, the 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 most convenient way is voice control. But I'm also interested in the, in sort of slight movements of maybe the eyes or the head in the way that you line up objects that you've got in your vision as as ways of making affirmative actions that you want to, you know, I want a yes result from this. And Arise was a, a sort of first step into that where you don't control the character. You, you have to sort of position your head and, and look to fill gaps in the level. And if, if you fill, align the, the blocks and it looks like there isn't a gap there, then the character runs across and he auto runs. So that, you know, there really are no controls. And then you've got to physically move around the level sort of, helping the character progress as he moves to the top of the level and, and so that that was kind of the the whole basis of it for us and of course that that can only work if the level is anchored in the real world which is obviously what ar kit does it uses the cameras to say i know where you are i know where the camera is and i know where the level is so unlike pokemon go where if you if you walk towards the pokemon it kind of moves away from you on, on ar kit it, it is locked in the world and so that that was, uh, you know, that was a very interesting thing for us and something that we, you know, we progressed. I mean, we've got, we've got another uh, unannounced uh, title coming out for AR Kit shortly. Um, you know, be very excited when we were able to talk about that. Um, and then after that, I'm just sort of hoping someone does make me my AR glasses because, you know, I just think they're going to change the world. Well, I mean, the closest thing I can think of uh, is HoloLens, and um, that seems to be years away. Well, it, it launched over a year ago now, and you can only, well, you know the tech world, you know how fast things move, uh, right. year I'm and a half ages. So I, I think I'm they'll be ready to do a HoloLens soon. Sorry, I'm carry on. I'm talking like HoloLens for the masses. Yeah, obviously HoloLens is a thing, but it, from what I understand, it's like nowhere near ready for consumer uh, level. 
Oh no, of course not. But but my point is that within five years, they're, they're, they're <clears throat> obviously they launched that a year and a, a year and a half ago. So, and and they would have already been working on the next one before they launched that one. So I, I suspect Hololens two will be out shortly, and it will be smaller, lighter, better in every regard. And and in you know in every I guess year and a half, two years, they'll bring out a new iteration. So I, I think in five years we'll we'll have really good. Uh, AR, you know, head-mounted uh, displays that are light enough, that are do have long enough battery life and do have a good field of view. That's a distinct possibility. Like five years sounds about right for um, tech. I, th I think for the masses, I, th I think the early adopters will have something good enough. I think you know, I've, I've read lots of articles, been to lots of talks, and, and given lots of talks myself, and I, and I think. It, it will follow the pattern of the smartphone that the the early adopters will be using it for business just just like hololens is i mean that's a commercial product that's finding a a really good home in the commercial sector at the moment and what will happen is when it when it does become less uh, you know more feature rich and lighter and everything business people will see the advantage of using it and and they'll they'll be early adopters of it, and then it'll just get more and more powerful and smaller and lighter again. But then you know those products will bleed down through the families, and and everyone you know in ten years I think everyone will say how do we live without these things? They they give us so much more, uh, you know, information without any friction, um, you know, and and I think they're they're a really disruptive technology as well. I think I think AR glasses will. You know, they'll signal the death of the screen because any any device that you currently use that has a screen will be redundant because you won't need it because your your glasses will provide you with all of those screens in one you know and you can whether you physically place them in a room or whatever um, you know they, they, they're going to be a, a, a huge disruptor to the way we interact with information quite possibly yeah Sometimes it's hard to say with tech, you know. It could revolutionize the world, or it could end up being the next Google Glass. You know, it's like, you know, the the you know the tech world is unpredictable to a point. Um, yeah, but I, I think um, when when you've, I, I mean, I'm in a fortunate position that I've I've seen some of the things that are. Currently in development, and and when you sort of track, knowing the way that all technology goes, especially uh, you know silicon-based technology that we're all talking about, the the user cases I can see for it and the benefits it will provide, I, I just I just can't see how how people won't want that. I mean, I, I use an analogy where um, I've I've got a smartwatch now. For when they first came out, I kind of laughed and went, why would you bother? And then I got one, and it was a it was a Gear S3 uh, Samsung, and of course my my emails will pop up on it, and I, I can actually read them, and it meant I no longer had to get my phone out of my pocket when it beeped, and I could just look at my phone, uh, sorry, at my watch, and then I could decide whether I actually needed to get my phone out. So it it kind of reduced the friction, the interaction. And then, of course, if you imagine you've got glasses on and, and there's just a, a constant feed of those things coming through, it, it will be a huge advantage to you when you when you meet people, you know, because all the facial recognition stuff works. 
So it'll remember, your glasses will remember that you did meet that person before, what their name is, when, where you met them, uh, maybe their LinkedIn profile, all of those things, which are going to be really good in business. And, you know, that will that will just sort of bleed down and, and everyone will, will feel like, how did I ever get by with having to get my phone out when my, my emails and messages just kind of appear in my vision? You make a good case for it. I mean, you know, it's like uh, time will tell, I suppose. Um, I'm, but... I'm just I'm going to be a great advocate for it. And I'm, I'm going to sort of very much say, look, it's going to happen. Uh, I, I, it, I think it could be, you know, it could be a lot less than 10 years. I think everyone sort of overestimates what will happen in two years, but massively underestimates what will happen in 10 years. I'm like, very possibly, like, you know, it's like, uh, at any rate, um, distant future aside, um, is there any upcoming projects uh, in the near future that you can talk about? Um, I believe our Adventure Time game has been announced. So let's say, yeah, I can talk about that. We're, we're working on a, yeah, Adventure Time, um, which we're excited about. That'll be out uh, sometime next year. Um, all the other stuff we're working on is, uh, well, there, there, there is an AR game that will be announced shortly. In fact, it'll be launched shortly, I believe. Uh, but again, I can't talk about that yet because it's not been announced. And then... All of the other stuff we're doing is, yeah, most secret. Uh, we're working on a couple more AR things and also a couple of sort of brand new technology projects, which again are going to kind of shake up the industry, I believe. Um, we're working with other people on them. You know, we're, we're um, over the last sort of five years, we've become a bit, I guess in some ways because of the VR and AR stuff we've done, We've actually become somewhat of a go-to contractor for new technology and new high-end technology. Uh, not not the original sort of conception of it, but what we provide now is a service where we'll work with the technology team in the company that's produced it, and then we'll work with that technology to sort of say, okay, this is how the real world works. This is how we use technology to make things. And we kind of work with them to iron out any of the, you know, the features that they'll need to add or the tools they'll need to add. So we're, we're, we're involved in a couple of projects like that at the moment, which are very exciting. Uh, I can imagine. And um, I'll, I'll see if my colleagues here have any questions for you before we wrap things up. Okay. I think I'm good. Uh, yeah, I don't have too much other questions. It's uh, good to hear you be good to hear a strong advocate for like the future possibilities of VR and AR stuff. And I like the stuff about when you're trying to anchor stuff more closely in the world, because that is an issue that I've had with some AR stuff. But uh, yeah, I just I can't do it much myself because I am very prone to visually induced headaches. So same. Right. Yeah. Um, I suppose my final question is, um, are you merely concentrating on VR and AR applications in the game space, or are you looking to expand beyond that? Uh, we have a lot of conversations with companies 
on on more broader. One of the projects we're doing is very definitely. Uh, whilst it's got game applications, it's uh, it's it's wide wider reaching than that. Um, we are a games company, and by default, we we tend to get more involved in the the game side of it. When we do have conversations with you know car manufacturers and things like that, and and sometimes the you know it almost feels from our point of view. Um, you know, there's there's other projects that excite us more, or the timing's wrong. Sometimes they, some people not in the games industry, kind of underestimate how long things will take. And so most of the non-game approaches we have, they they've come to us at the last minute and said, we've got this thing happening here. Can you do this? And you, you look at it and go, I'd love to do it. I really would, but we need more time. And you know, they don't really understand how much effort goes into building even our assets or anything like that. In, you know, in the process that we have to go through. So, so far, it's it's mostly been games, but yeah, there are a couple of things we've got in the pipeline that are going to have a broader, um, you know, broader uh, impact. Let's put it that way. Now, now, all right. I think that'll about do it uh, here. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your uh, schedule, Simon, to be with us here today. No, no yeah. problem. I've really enjoyed it. It's good to hear. That's always good to hear um, when people enjoy our conversations. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again in the future um, as more VR and AR stuff gets, you know, announced and released. Right. Sure. And, you know, I look forward to seeing um, if your proclamations about AR come true. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, so that'll about do it for this installment of Fragments of Silicon. Be sure to join us on Wednesday, uh, tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, our guest will be William Pellin of Team Cherry, the developer of uh, the recent indie hit Hollow Knight. Like, I'm looking forward to that, and hopefully you are too. And until then, I wish you good gaming.